Are you an independent creator whose Kickstarter or self-published comic could use a fresh set of eyes? Are you a comics blogger who self-edits and maybe doesn't have time to catch every last typo or missing word in their long-form piece about the importance of lettering or subtextual themes in X-Men? Fun fact, in addition to running comics up and coming as new site, uh, WMQ Comics editor-publisher Dan Grote has more than a decade's worth of experience as a professional editor and wants to bring his skills to your next comics or comics-adjacent project. Whether you're writing a script, in the lettering phase, or running your own blog, WMQ&E Editing Services can provide you the copy editing, proofreading, and advice you need to make your next project a success. In the process, you contribute to the success of WMQ Comics by allowing us to provide a service that can help us expand our site. Let's face it, everyone needs an editor. Let us help you get closer to perfection. For more information and rates, email danpgroat at gmail.com. WMQA! Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking about Jeff Rugby, the music producer and writer behind Images Gunning for Hits, a thriller set in the music industry during the 1980s. And we're going to start off a little bit differently than we normally do. Uh, I talked to Jeff briefly about an image that caused a little bit of a stir online. There's a sequence in the first issue of Gunning for Hits that serves as an explainer for how the music industry works, and it's illustrated by Moritat in kind of a chibi style, and among the characters portrayed therein is a large-nosed lawyer with the name Erwin J. Scheister that some people took to be anti-Semitic. Uh, I asked Jeff about that, and here's what he had to say. Well, you know, first of all, I want to apologize to anybody who felt offended or hurt by it, because that was not our intention. Um, it's, uh, uh, the name actually comes from a wrestler, uh, who was Ern R. Scheister, but I didn't want to get sued by the WWE. Uh, <laughs> you know, the fact that he's got a big nose and he's a lawyer, um, you know, I can see maybe how some people are putting a thing together there, but that, again, wasn't my intention. Um, and uh, actually, it was inspired by um, my love of the Darwin Cook Parker books. Um, and in particular, um, in The Hunter, uh, there's a bunch of explanations of heists, different heists that happen. And in each uh, explanation, he did it in a different style. Uh, and there's one um, that if you actually go to the book, you'll see the characters all have big noses and um, tiny eyes like that, uh, that character. And it's sort of, I think it's kind of a callback. I think it might be a little bit of a generational thing. It's kind of a callback to like, the Pink Panther cartoons, like uh, the Inspector character, looked like that, okay. um, and and a lot of those sort of like <clears throat> uh, mid-century sort of Atomic Age cartoon characters had had that look. Um, and I guess the other thing I would say is, you know, like some people have taken offense at the word shyster. Um, you know, uh, my understanding of the word shyster and uh, all of my um, just say this because it's kind of sounds like uh, some of my best friends are ism but all of uh, the jewish lawyers i know who i've worked with in the music business for years have never thought of it as an anti-semitic term they've thought of it as uh, an anti-lawyer term and i guess the best illustration of that would be you know it's it's not even necessarily about lawyers it's more like somebody who does shady business dealings i would call donald trump a shyster and he's neither jewish or a lawyer so Matt Lazowitz and I talked a little bit about it after, and here's his take. I mean, I'll plot to tell you, as someone with the last name Lazowitz, not in the least bit offended. It's, but it's just, I, I, I there is clearly no intent 
behind that panel and yeah i that's what yeah what i feel like i'm looking for when i'm looking to maybe not looking to be offended isn't the right turn of phrase but you know what i mean yeah if i'm looking to see to whether or not to be offended intent has a lot to do with it and i didn't read any intent in that panel so that's that there's plenty more to talk about with Jeff, including his work with David Bowie, the Spotify playlists he's been working on for the comic, and a lot, a lot uh, about his and Matt's shared love of Darwin Cook. Uh, moving on, what is going on over at WMQComics.com? Ooda lolly, what isn't? Uh, we've got a Q&A up right now between friend of the show Will Nevin and author Chuck Palahniuk. We've got a review of Age of X-Men Alpha from our good friend Charlie Davis. Uh, Joshua Bermont reviewed all the TKO Studios launch titles, including Goodnight Paradise, The Fearsome Dr. Fang, Seven Deadly Sins, and Sarah. We have a uh, new pod people going up this week in which we talk to the hosts of a podcast dedicated to the comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. We're going to review DC's Female Furies number one. And at long last, Trent Seely is back to offer his take on the whole Uncanny X-Men disassembled arc, kind of a sequel to his Burden of Expectations piece from the fall, all of which you can find over at WMQComics.com. But now let's jump back into the conversation with me and Matt and Jeff. So I was at the uh, the Image panel at New York Comic Con where Gunning for Hits got announced, and uh, that was that was probably the perfect panel to announce that book because if you look at the level and the mix of talent that was on that dais, it, probably the closest thing to a panel of comic industry rock stars that you're, you you could get at that show. You know, you had Jason Aaron, you, your marquee blockbuster guy. You know, Kieran Gillen, the quirky British comic relief. Uh, you know, Jen Bartel, amazing artist. Joe Casey, the the seen it all veteran who's wearing his sunglasses indoors. You know, Jerry Duggan. Another funny guy, and Daniel Warren Johnson, who the shy one, basically. You know, he's they're sitting there, kind of fidgeting, got a lot of nervous energy, talking about this book called Murder Falcon that's getting like applause breaks. Uh, how did it feel being up there with that bunch, plugging your first major comics work? You know, it, it was really surreal because, um, you know, I mean, that it's just, you know, I've worked with rock stars all my life, and yet. And, you know, not been, you know, I mean, I sort of got over being, you know, impressed by rock stars. But, uh, you know, that, like you said, that panel was crazy with talent and, you know, people that I really have admired and loved for years. And, you know, some of the, um, you know, the top image creators. And, uh, yeah, it was just real. It was, it was just what, what am I doing here, really? <laughs> like, why am I not in the audience watching this? You've uh, you, you mentioned uh that your, your first comic was Amazing Spider-Man 126, uh, in which Spidey fights the kangaroo, one of his more uh, forgettable animal-themed villains. Um, <laughs> do you remember some of your, your other early comics from those days? Yeah, you know, I was uh, uh, I was kind of a Turok fan before that, um, but I didn't consider myself like a comic book collector. You know, it was like the mm -hmm. Spider-Man thing is what flipped me and made me like go out and just start buying pretty much everything that Marvel published and probably like half of what DC published, which is probably about, you know, a third or a quarter of what gets published in a week now. Um, and, you know, it was easy to get hooked. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of, oh man, I mean, you know, the three issues after the first Spider-Man I bought was the first Punisher story, you know? Right. And, um, and, and it was weird because I dropped out of comics for a bit and I came back and the, the issue that I came back on was um, Daredevil 158, 
and and you know then i went right into all those frank miller stories there and then you know the 80s and dark knight and watchmen and everything so you know yeah i, I think i have a lot of the same touchstones that uh, everybody does uh, you know whether you were going backwards or or forwards i am curious you know based on you know you were a comic collector you're also you know, getting into music at the same time, you know, what does Jeff's, what did Jeff's teenage bedroom look like? Was it just like long boxes and vinyl crates everywhere? You know, what kind of posters did you have up on the wall? I think all my posters were uh, music posters um, and mostly probably, you know, first generation punk band posters, um, you know, pre LA scene punk band uh, posters, I would guess. Maybe an X poster made it up there. Um, you know, and comics, I I had an old bookcase that, that was um, full of comics and that, that I think my great-grandmother had. And uh, that was, yeah, that was it. So it was like, you know, all records, all comics, and, uh, and all punk band posters. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> I was... Uh... I was very much into video games at that age. And so I cut up like a whole bunch of electronic gaming monthlies and just had like video game ads plastered all over my room. That was my thing. <laughs> me, me, it was, you know, God help me for admitting this, Wizard Magazines chopped up, all the posters from out of them. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of great art there. Yeah, there was. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, it, it's funny you talk like video games. So I, you know, when video games came along, it was really for me, um, I guess you could have Atari you could have, but like the first video game that really blew my mind was space invaders. And you could only play space invaders at this, the arcade mm -hmm. and the arcade was in the back of a newsstand where I used to buy my comics. And it was like the most disgusting place in the city I lived in. <laughs> it, it was so gross that they sold, um, cigarettes for a dime out of a candy jar individually to the homeless guys that lived in the, you know on the street so they they beg up enough money to buy a cigarette it was crazy it's like a prison commissary yeah yeah, yeah it really is and that's probably back when a pack cost you know 75 cents or something or a dollar oh sure yeah um do you have like um like a top five creators from that era you know let's say you know keep the general bronze age 75 to 85 Oh man, uh, you know, hmm. Engelhart, um, Steve Gerber, um, Jim Starlin, uh, you know, all the Gil Kane stuff I love. Um, trying to think of who else was in, and, and you know, there's a lot of writers who kind of, I think, get rolled up into sort of the same generic group like Jerry Conway and Len Wein, but they were great. So I love those guys too. Matt is a, uh, Matt's a big Starling guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've read all that, gone back to all that. Uh, it's funny. Uh, Len, I've read, read a bunch of Len Wein, especially his, the early Swamp Thing stuff with Bernie Wrightson, which is tremendous stuff. Yeah. That stuff was crazy. I mean, I remember uh, even then, I th think that was a little like before when I started collecting, but I ended up 
you know, going to like flea markets and stuff with my grandfather. And that's sort of where there weren't really comic shops back then that sold back issues, um, at least where I was. So you'd be at these flea markets and guys would be set up with bong boxes. And that's how I got like the death of Gwen Stacy and all that stuff. And of course, you know, it was like a dollar and, you know, my grandfather was like a dollar on the cover. Um, uh, but that's how I got it. The swamp Banks too. And uh, man, yeah, that stuff is in- incredible. And really, I mean, you know, both of them firing on all cylinders at that point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, let's, let's, let's talk gunning for hits. Uh, you know, one thing I, uh, I really liked about the book is, you know, you've got this uh, kind of mid-story uh, illustration that Moritat does for a few pages that gets you kind of through what, in a lesser book, could have been, you know, a very laborious uh, info dump, uh, you know, on how the music industry actually works and worked in, you know, the, the era in which the book is set. Um, how kind of extensive, how long did you guys kind of go back and forth on that particular section? Well, I'm really glad that you... you described it the way you did because uh, the 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 handful you know i've got to say i'm, I'm the, the night before the book came out i was totally freaked out like <laughs> nobody's going to get this what you know what am i doing you know it's going to be a, you know this disaster and um and then the first couple of reviews came in like the night before and i was like oh my god people actually get it <laughs> the people the people that didn't get it seemed to to have been um derailed by that section like they couldn't deal with the juxtaposition of the you know more realistic part of the book and then going into that world where everything's highly stylized um but you know i think you sort of answered the question in a way like you i had to do that because if you had just laid that all out it might as well have been pages of text instead you know and i think it was the most um, entertaining uh, solution to a to a problem of how do you dump all this information in a comic book, and information that you need like going forward through the whole series that you can't sort of drop in from time to time. So, you know, as as I said before, you know, the 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 Darwin Cook uh, uh, heist stuff is really what inspired me to make the stylistic change. And, uh, you know, that's clearly what he was trying to do. Like he, he was adapting these Parker books that described, you know, three different heists and he put each one in a different style and, um, and that broke up the book and stopped it from being just this boring, dull exposition. So, um, so I, I you know, Mortat was on board with it from the beginning and, and, uh, I did, uh, it was funny, I, you know, I sort of do roughs for him just for like pacing and just try to show him what I'm getting at. And of course, he takes everything that I do and he makes it a thousand times better. But um, that section, he mostly left, I think, the, the way I drew it um, with a few exceptions. And uh, it was kind of hilarious that, that, he, that he used it because I was like, really, you're going to let me do this? <laughs> Yeah, I mean that those sections in the outfit are some of the best of those Parker books stuff I've written about extensively and adore. And it was I love Mortat. He's uh, I fell in love with his stuff on All Star Western, and yes. I've 
one of my favorite pieces in my sketchbook that I bring to cons is Amora Tot. And I was just, it was so cool to see him because I have, he hasn't done a lot of stuff for DC or Marvel since, or DC since uh, all-star Western wrapped. And it was like, Ooh, and it was gorgeous from page one. Yeah. He's just, he's so incredible and he's so, uh, I think, you know, he's really underrated and he is an amazing uh, collaborator because he, you know, I mean, I don't know, if, you know, I think everything he's done has been really great. I love the spirit stuff. I, I'm with you on the all-star Western stuff that, uh, you know, big Jonah Hex fan anyway. Um, but to take something like this, that's just so, you know, not, the normal comic book and um, find a way to make it work visually. Um, it's a huge challenge. And he did such an amazing job um, and he, and he continues to do an amazing job. It just blows me away when the pages come in. His problem solving is, is incredible. And I, you know, I dump way too many words on him and he <laughs> finds a way to make it work anyway. So yeah, he's, he's really something. Uh, Matt, just out of curiosity, uh, what uh, what is the Moratot sketch in your sketchbook? Amadeus Arkham, founder of Arkham Asylum, who was wow. yeah, he was a supporting character in those Jonah Hex stories in All Star Western. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a pretty deep dive, man. <laughs> well, my sketchbook is all Bat characters. Batman's my thing, so <laughs> I, I've gotten to a point where I'm getting more of these deep dives from artists because there's only so many Batman's jokers and Mike Mignola designed Mr. Freeze's you can get. Yeah, I totally hear you. So let me ask you a question. Cause if you're, if you're a big Parker, uh, Darren Cook Parker fan, I'm wondering if you have the same problem I have, which is whenever I start reading one of those books, I end up reading all four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I've had, have you ever seen or got the I've got the um, I don't remember what they called them. I mean, they're the scale of DC's absolutes. Oh, the martini edition. Yes. Oh, I've got that. And I wish they would do a second to get all of them in those martini editions, because that I, I, I start in that. And it's like and now I've got to I mean, not to say that there's anything about the smaller ones that I don't love, but it's like, boy, it would be great to have them both in that giant format yeah it's driving I, I mean i i'm totally with you that format is incredible and i actually have been trying to bug um scott dunbier um to tell me because i've seen i saw pages a few years ago but but what the original art size was because i think the original art is actually smaller than it's reproduced in the uh, martini edition huh and uh, I think he also like so he would draw it right, and then he, you know so each book's colored with like one color, right? And he would actually paint the color on with a brush right onto the page, which like to me that's terrifying, right? Oh. If if I had drawn such an amazing page in the first place, I don't know that I would like. I feel like I would make a copy or something or <laughs> yeah. be a little more careful, but he just, he just put the brush right on the paper and did all the tinting with a, with a brush. It's that Mozart from Amadeus where the, the, the pages are perfect every time. It's like, Oh, to the, the dread I would feel. Uh, at, oh yeah. Right. I mean, it's crazy. 
he he was such a sweet guy too. I mean, I met him a few times in San Diego, and um, and I actually told him about the book at one point, and uh, and he was super encouraging, which you know may have just been trying to get rid of me, but um, but you know it meant a real lot to me because I I just hold him in such high regard. Yeah, he's one one of the guys I never got to meet, and it's you know. It's a, I mean, it's a regret that he passed. So, and I don't, you know, you never want to make it about yourself, but it's like, boy, what I wouldn't have given to have gotten to just shake his hand and tell him how much I loved the Parker stuff and New Frontier and Batman Ego. Yeah. Oh God, Batman Ego. Yeah. And when Sling- that thing. Oh, go. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> no. no. We, let's all gosh. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Selena's big score too. Oh. Yeah. The Slam Bradley stuff. Yes. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he's really something. It, it bums me out that he, you know, there were, I guess there was something between him and, and, and a Marvel editor. And, he, you know, he never ended up doing much Marvel work. But uh, there's there's just not enough Darwin Cook stuff out in the world. I, yeah, I, I'm t- he did. There was that one month where DC did a variant month where he did a 17 covers for different books and it has become my goal to track them all down just so I have that little bit more Darwin Cook in my in my collection. Yeah, you know, he did a con right when those came out. I think it was in Florida. And it, it, he sold prints of all of those covers, 11 by 17 prints of all those covers. And uh, the Batgirl one is a is the holy grail for me because I think that's I think that's well, you know, it's kind of like saying what's your favorite, you know. Bowie album it's like it changes every week but I think that was my favorite of those covers and I definitely want to track that print down at some point and get it framed I uh I really appreciated you know the timeline that's that comes with the back matter under 2016 it says simply Bowie dies Prince dies Darwin Cook dies what the actual fuck and I love that as your your trinity of that year because 2016 was definitely one of those years where like a ton of major cultural figures died and Cook you know, for you, occupies the space that the average person probably would have reserved for, like, Muhammad Ali, for example. And and it just, you know, it's just another example of how this book is the perfect, you know, marriage of, of comics and music. God, was 2016 the year Ali died, too? Yes, Ali, it was. Alan Rickman. God, because, yeah, Ali was a, another tough one for me, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, that was, yeah, it was just, 2016 was like waking up every, and knowing every week you were going to get kicked in the balls. Like, that's just, <laughs> that's just what it felt like to me. I, I, I could not believe it. And, you know, to me, uh, I always felt like Bowie was kind of like the the spirit of music in the 70s, and Prince was the spirit of music in the 80s, and mm-hmm. to have them both die within like, you know, a couple of months of each other, especially the Prince thing. Cause like I knew Bowie was sick and that, you know, it was possible, even though he was, you know, very, um, he kept to himself, but you know, I knew that was possible, but Prince, I just, that I never saw that coming. And, you know, I moved out to Minneapolis to, because I wanted to be near that scene. And, uh, it was really, it was devastating. I, I'll never forget hearing that. You know, as, somebody who got to work with Bowie in, in, you know, producing the, the, you know, the Ryko disc collection. Uh, what, what is something that you would want people to know about the man based on your interactions with him that maybe the average person doesn't know? 
Well, you know, I think people have um, an impression of rock stars, which is probably generally true, um, that they're sort of arrogant and privileged and all of that. And, mm -hmm. um, and Bowie was not that at all. He was like the nicest guy, um, super warm, um, super friendly, loved to talk with anyone about, you know, if they shared his interests, you could talk to him for, you know, as long as you could get with him, I guess, depending on what his schedule was like. But I mean, he, he and I used to talk about like art and music for, you know, for long times before gigs and stuff. And, um, and that was really fun. Um, the other thing though, was that he was so charming that he could get you to do anything that he wanted you to do. And you didn't even <laughs> realize it. And I had phone calls where I, I would call him up and, you know, be and go into it going like, I know, you know, the trickster man is going to talk me out of this, but I'm sticking to my guns and I'm going to make sure that I get these bonus tracks for this reissue. And he'd pick up the phone and I'd hang up a few minutes later, all happy. And I'd realized he'd talk me out of the stuff that I wanted to talk him into. So, um, yeah, yeah, he was, he was really, you know, he's, he deserves to be held in the high regard that he's held in. He was really an amazing man. That is, that is definitely like, I, I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not the kind of person who I guess gets, you know, affected often when a celebrity dies, but like that Bowie stung, you know, in a way that, that few others really have like Chris Cornell and Phil Hartman, I think would be the other ones. And, uh, I had, a, I had a therapist for a little bit who was a session musician who recorded with Bowie at Sigma Studios in Philly uh, on the Young Americans album. And so for our last session, I just had him tell me stories about working with Bowie on that album. And uh, they tour he toured for like five or six shows or something like that with him. And, you know, or as much as he could remember, given it had been 40 years and, you know, nothing, nothing salacious or crazy you know i think like you he was just very complimentary of the man in general and then he got into telling a story about working with Ted, teddy pender uh penny yeah teddy pendergast and that was where all the real debauched rock star stuff came in <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think by the time well you know actually so young americans bowie still would have been see so here's the other thing about bowie like mm -hmm. i saw him you know smoke a lot of cigarettes, drink a lot of alcohol, and it never seemed to affect him. And he was not a big man, you know? I mean, right. he was thin as a, you know, a ghost most of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, he just had an incredible constitution. So I don't think he was like one of those people who was ever off the rails. Like, I think he could always be, be he was always in control. Um, I think he had some moments in the right after that period, right after that Philly period where, you know, uh, he probably wasn't keeping it together when he got home, but he made, you know, some of the greatest records of his career, uh, completely out of his mind. And he doesn't remember making, or, you know, he didn't remember making station to station. Like didn't remember making the record at all. And that's one of his greatest records. That's a good time. Yeah, <laughs> or, or or maybe not. <laughs> uh, um, 
something I learned from this issue that I, I had no idea about is that a lot of the reason the music industry was so flush with cash in the 80s uh, apart from MTV was the reissue market of albums being remastered and re-released on CD as people transitioned from vinyl, which is crazy when you think about how vinyl came back uh, the way it has in the past decade or whatever. Like, uh, I have one friend who is exclusively vinyl, like, you know, it, still still buying physical media. And it's, it's, it's all, you know, he's out there every record store day and everything. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, not owning a CD player until... 1987, which still beats me by 11 years. I was real late to that part. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I sort of, I needed to own one, um, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> For and, work. And I, yeah, yeah, like, you know, I mean, because I had all vinyl. And of course, I, I had cassettes, but the only things I had on cassette were things that um, I couldn't get on vinyl. Like there were some cassette-only releases, or there were, like, live shows that friends had given me copies of or whatever. Um, but but actually, some co-workers took pity on me, and they bought me a CD player for, like, Christmas or something, because um, I didn't I didn't have one. Um, but, yeah, that, that, was cr that was really crazy, because you sort of had that confluence of everything, because, you know, in the 60s, like, okay, the Beatles and Stones sold a lot of records, but, like, a lot of records back then was, like, half a million records and by the 70s when you've got um uh, and i'm talking about albums not singles um you know by the 70s when you you know you're talking about led zeppelin and pink floyd you're talking about multi-millions of copies of records and you know the rock star is a huge big deal and then you get mtv come along and amplify that even more because it's the it's like having the same radio station across the country in every house. And then you get this new format that makes everybody want to go buy all the old stuff again. So you've got all these new bands that are taken off because their videos are getting played. And then you've got all these older records, which had probably trailed down to, you know, a little trickle um, that are suddenly selling huge numbers again. Um, and then you've got stuff that, had probably been out of print for years and years. Like you couldn't get the New York Dolls records in the United States. I, I We used to have to bring those in from the UK. You couldn't get the Velvet Underground records in the United States. They were all out of print because there wasn't enough demand. Um, and all those records came back into print. I honestly think, you know, some of those bands, they were actually saved by the format because it, it uh, they would have been, for, and I wouldn't say they would have been forgotten but their, their music wouldn't have been available uh, to the mass market consumer in the United States. You would have had to go into a specialty store and buy a, an import. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was really a weird uh, comp, uh, confluence of a whole bunch of things happening at once. Um, you know, and then, you know, talking about the CD era, the, the, the logo for the book you know, I love how it homages the old compact disc logo. Uh, curious who gets who gets the credit for that? Um, that was my idea. And um, I I almost wonder, there, there was a band um, called uh, the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. Okay. And it was great name. Two, <laughs> a great name. Two really, really smart guys who put the band together and they said, we're going to have a number one hit single in England. And their idea was to do, uh, you know, the Gary Glitter song, uh, Rock and Roll Part Two. 
Sure. You know, da, 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 hey. hey. So uh, what they did was they basically did a new version of that, except it was Doctor Who, Doc, Doctor Who. And, <laughs> and they had a number one single with it, but they were nervous. It almost didn't get to number one. Um, total novelty song right up, you know, Britain in that era had lots of like dopey number one novelty songs. Um, and that's what they wrote it for. But they called it um, Doctor in the TARDIS because there was a, there was some other hit single at the time called like Doctor in the House or something. And they thought it was clever. But in retrospect, they were like, you know, <laughs> we should have just called it Doctor Who Doc. Um, and to me, the Gunning for Hits logo um, it needed the little bit underneath the hits. So I ended up tagging it with a bunch of different things. I had music thriller and I had comic book and all that stuff. And um, uh, I almost wonder if uh, I wasn't um, being too clever for my own good by tagging it with the music thriller thing, because it's sort of a narrow description of what it actually is. Were there, other, were there other candidates for the general design, or is that like the thing that you knew you wanted? No, that was the thing that I knew I wanted. Um, I had, you know, a friend, uh, a friend's son who was like, you know, 12 years old, Photoshop wizard, um, put it together for me. And uh, we just, you know, manipulated some uh, of the letters from uh, Compact Disc, and, uh, and there it is. Awesome. Um, <laughs> So you create you created the Spotify playlist for this series, which uh, I've been listening to pretty much all day as I'm you know cobbling together my notes for this. And uh, I you know was it pretty easy picking out the songs for the playlist? Uh, you know, knowing the era the story was set in, or did you agonize over it? Some like any good mixtape maker. Oh yeah, no. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that you like it because it's it is a weird mix of music. Um, but yeah, of course I agonized over it. Um, and I'm agonizing over the issue two one right now. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it was, it was hard to decide what to land on. Cause I knew I wanted a mix of songs from that year, but I also wanted other songs that spoke to, um, the tone of the story and to like some of the characters journeys. Um, so I ended up, you know, there's a, tra I think the most recent track is from like 2016. It's a Daniel Pemberton uh, song from, uh, or some score from Molly's Game. Um, but, um, you know, there's plenty of stuff from way before 1987 too. So it's really all, it's, it's mostly about tone for me. Um, and then, uh, I don't know if you've checked out the Gunning for Hits website, but um, <laughs> just plug, plug. Um, if, uh, if you're listening to the playlist, there's actually a page on the website that goes track by track and explains uh, why the track was picked and, um, you know, just some of my um, fuzzy logic for putting it up there. Did you have, do you, do you have somebody or, or anybody you use as sort of like a sounding board for this as you're kind of mapping these out? No, not really. Um, I uh, see now you've, cast some doubt in my mind i have a, <laughs> i was just trusting myself and now i wonder if that's smart maybe i maybe i'm making a mistake but no i i, I it's 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 all me and uh, um i don't really i don't really check in with anybody because i think like i said some of it speaks to character and you know then i'd really have to explain a lot of stuff to other people to get them to understand why i was including some of the tracks um 
And then we've also there's also a uh, Twitter profile for the Martin Mills, the main character uh, in the story. Uh, how often do you see that? Uh, you know, how how frequently should we watch that space for for kind of updates and, and clues as to this guy's backstory? I'm well. So here's the thing about it. Um, uh-huh. The 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 that Twitter feed is is uh, supposed to be uh, excerpts from Martin's diaries. So um, it's going to give you hints about things that happened before the events that we're s- seeing this uh, series start with. Um, but it's also going to give you hints about what happens to him after. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, uh, he's dead now. In 2019, Martin no longer exists. He's he's died. So um, so there's going to be a lot of uh, hints. Through, and I would say, you know, once a month, twice a month, at the most, once a week, um, I'll be dropping little uh, little hints in there. But but I've got his whole life story plotted out. So um, we're we're hoping this book goes for a long time. That's awesome. Um, what are you reading right now? Hmm. That's Scott. <laughs> so much stuff um and you know unfortunately i have stacks of things so um every guest we ask this question too yeah. does right As do both of us preaching yes. in the choir yeah, i'm sure i mean some of the things that i read you know right away no matter when they come out is you know love and rockets still which is crazy you know 30 plus years later 70s and rock and roll and comics there you go well you know and and, and, but i mean that the yeah of course i love all that stuff but just the you know the idea that those characters have grown up as the comic continues so they're you know they're the age they would be as if the you know as if the comic happened in real time that's amazing uh, um, I love that stuff. Um, I go straight to um, Wicked and Divine whenever that comes in. Uh, I loved, uh, I don't know if it's still going, the the um, Nick Spencer uh, series. Oh, uh, the, 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 fix. the Fix. Yeah. It's yeah. it's on hiatus, but I am dying for it to come back because oh, such a cliffhanger. So great. That's great. And Think Tank, I love. I think that's brilliant. Um, you know, I like stuff that like gets into the, really gets into the weeds, like the inside baseball stuff. Um, and, 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 and think tanks brilliant for that. Um, man, you know, and uh, you know, walking dead, I still like walking dead is one of the first things I read when I get, when I get home with it. Um, and it's, I just, I still, still love reading it. Robert's such a great writer. Absolutely. Uh, well, Jeff, uh, as we're wrapping up, uh, how can people follow you online and and kind of get to all these extra pieces of digital content for uh, Gunning for Hits? Probably the best answer to that is to go to the Gunning for Hits website, um, which can take you to all those places. Um, but I will say there's a, a there's a Gunning for Hits Facebook page. There's a Gunning for Hits Instagram. Uh, there's a Jeff Rugby Instagram, a Jeff Rugby Facebook page, a Jeff Rugby Twitter, uh, JeffRugby.com. <laughs> um, and uh, if you're just going straight for the music, if you search on Spotify for Gunning for Hits comic soundtrack, um, that'll bring it up. Awesome. Jeff, thank you so much for doing the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. That's it for this week's show. 
As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes and the ability to promote your work on our site. And $2 gets you a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Laswitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Laswitz at MattLaz1013. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. WMQA!